Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Um, and now inflation is hitting double digits. All of their red ink is really our lacking. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Now, most people think economics can be summarised in just two words, supply and demand. And where they cross, that determines the price. And as they move, the price moves. The supply curve moves up diagonally from the zero axis. The demand curve moves down and crosses it somewhere. And that is the optimum price of something or equilibrium. But what if the supply curve is wrong? or meaningless? Well, one of the first economists to question that was Piero Sraffa. We look at his work today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, we are working our way through, as we have been for the last four or five weeks. This is the fifth week, actually, of looking at an individual e- economist that uh, Steve thinks you should know about. Mm. Uh, and some of these will be names that are not familiar, uh, particularly this time, I think. Piero Sraffa, uh, an Italian economist born in 1898, uh, lived till around 1983, born in Turin. Uh, a wealthy Italian Jewish family. Actually, a lot of these economists that you've chosen all seem to be around the same time frame, sort of uh, the turn of the 20th century, uh, I guess, leading up to uh, the Great Depression in the 1930s. I guess that was an interesting time in economics, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, But it's also, these are innovative thinkers that haven't had... They've made distinctive contributions, mm. um, with, and if economics had absorbed more of the contribution, it would be a damn sight closer to a science. And a lot of his work, uh, I mean, we can look at his personal life. I don't know too mm. much about it myself, but maybe you know a bit more. A bit more, not a lot. Again, uh, I, I should do some more reading of biographies of economists. Uh, a lot of his work related to competition and the value of goods and services, and in particular, I know one of your big things about, you know, the, the shape of the supply curve. Yeah, well, he, he, in, in some ways, the thing which is common to all of them is going back to first principles mm. in some sort of way. And like his initial thing that brought him to attention wasn't anything to do with prices. It was actually with banking. He wrote a critique. He wrote, wrote an explanation of the uh, banking crisis in Italy in 1922. That's what brought him to Keynes's attention and got him moved to uh, England. It also brought him to Mussolini's attention, right. which is pretty damn dangerous at one stage because he was actually forced to return to Italy and uh, managed to avoid being in prison. But uh, uh, you know, ended up with quite progressive left-wing views. Was a great supporter and friend of Gramsci. And, and gave Gramsci the paper that he wrote his prison diaries on. So, uh, you know, so he did go to prison, did he? No, no, no. Oh. Gramsci did. He oh, would, right, okay. So Sraff was one of his would visit him. Right. Uh, and this is, you know, that's it's incredibly risky. Mm. I mean, to do that in a what is literally a fascist dictatorship. So why did he go back to Italy? Then? He was forced back because of he uh, when uh, when he uh, w- when Mussolini found out about his critique of the crisis, which was also involved with fraudulent behavior, reported by on Sraffa, uh, he just uh, 
wrote, wrote to the British government and told him to evict this man, and he was extradited. Extra, and he was sent off to, but he so he went back to Italy, but didn't end up going to jail. So, but he had to operate there for a number of years, and of course it got more dangerous. And each time he was rescued, it was rescued by Keynes. Keynes took him back. Right. In some sense. And he was also somebody who was friends with Ramsey, who gave us the nonsense that neoclassicals model on today with their dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models built on Ramsey's foundation. But he was you know, a companion of Ramsey's. So as much as his approach to economics was diametrically opposed, he had friendships across quite a, quite a broad spectrum. So, but, tell, so tell me about the supply curve then. Because there's this. Well, again, this is going back to first principles, and this is what Schraffer does so well, and mm. and, you know, and all the others we've spoken about. And he said, well, um, what is the, the the conventional assumption coming from Marshall is that it costs more to produce each additional unit of output, not because you have a decline in the quality of your inputs, which was Ricardo's case mm. about land. This is diminishing returns. Diminishing returns, returns, but because you're adding more and more of what he called a variable unit to a fixed unit of production. So you have variable factor, and fundamentally that's put across as being labor. So you can change the number of workers you have. You have a fixed amount of machinery. Uh, there's some ideal ratio of workers to machines. Uh, demand will mean you exceed that position. So you have... Uh, your demand is is uh, high enough to mean that you're putting more workers per machine than is the ideal ratio. You can't change the fixed capital which is the machines. You can change the variable. You need to produce more output. You put more workers on. You get less additional output per worker, and that's what causes the rising marginal cost curve. And Shreffer said that's a loaner below and it baloney. Well, it is, though, isn't it? It is so, baloney. So when you yeah. look at it and when you apply it to land and you're in a sort of an agricultural yeah. economy, mm. makes perfect sense where you've got a finite amount of land. I mean, it doesn't initially, but when you reach, you'll reach a point where you used all the best land, you want to produce more, you're going to get less return because you're using less arable And that's Ricardo's land. theory. So yeah. Ricardo had an idea of diminishing returns, but it came out of, of expanding your uh, production base and therefore having to use lower quality inputs right. so you get less output. And, and you could do the same for energy. You could say, well, you know, it's oil's been cheap uh, as we look for <clears throat> alternative energy as an input. That's going to become more expensive, perhaps. We're going to get less efficient use yeah, of but, energy. Yeah, but, but neoclassicals were just looking at a world where you produce output using labor and capital. Yeah. And presumed you would have, uh, uh, you, you would have a, a fixed number of machines, add more variable ca capital to it. For a while, you might get increasing returns as you approach the ideal machines, work, workers to machines ratio. But, then, but that's, that's crazy because the machines are doing the work and people are managing the machines. I know, so it's all... It's like it say, is, we've, got a, we've got a machine that produces 100 uh, widgets yeah. and one guy to operate it. Yeah. And we go, well, let's get two guys in to operate it. You're still only going to produce 100 widgets because that's all the machine is producing. So Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, and also, if you have two two machines... Well, you do is you get another machine to produce 100 Yeah, and that widgets. was Shrafa's army. So the whole idea of fixed capital mm. uh, is a nice blackboard of abstraction, but it's not the real world. In short, it's very short-termism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and look, you if, you, if you read, I recommend people uh, to read Mankiw. Now, I normally say don't even go near him, but have a look where Mankiw explains why you get diminishing output out of an increasing number of workers. And he literally describes factories as such well-known corporate entities as, for example, Hungry Helens, 
uh, oh, there's Carolyn's Cookies, mm. and there's another alliteration, several alliteration examples that he made up. Right. And the whole idea is you have a factory where to get to get to the machines, you've got a queue. Uh, <laughs> bullshit. I'm yeah. in plea. Can I say bullshit in this yeah, show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is just a, a crazy, naive vision of how a factory is designed. Whereas Schraffer said, look, there are t- the, you've got to go back to how you define an industry and how you, and how you define um, machinery as well. But if you define industry really, really broadly, like, for example, in saying agriculture, is an industry and manufacturing is an industry and uh, and services are an industry. Then, if you want to expand one of those, you have to take up some of the available inputs for the other. Okay, so if you want to expand the amount of agricultural land, you've got to turn some housing into agriculture, which is going to be expensive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you, as you expand that, you might get your diminishing returns. But that's on such a scale that to expand the output of agriculture, you're going to affect the wage rate. Okay, because you have so many workers, you're going to be pulling in from manufacturing. Uh, I'm, I'm using a counterexample, obviously. Yeah. But you know, you're going to bid up the price. They have to pay more for your inputs, which invalidates the whole idea of independent supply and demand curves. But you are. But you are. Once you reach full labour, yeah, then you are going to find that the cost of labour is going to go up, aren't you? So no, you well, will. See, so you will get diminishing returns at that point. Yeah, see, the, 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 no, the, the, the neoclassical theory starts from the idea of a, a, a isolated, competitive, pro, uh, profit-maximizing, price-taking firm. Mm-hmm. Okay, So you're so small, therefore you can't affect the... Even if you double your demand for labor, you have no effect on the cost of labor. Right. So you're not changing the cost. They seem you're getting, paying, you're getting the same quality. They're not taking any change in quality, as Ricardo argued. You're just getting a, adding more and more people to a fixed number of machines. Right. So it's and, just about people bumping over each other. Because yeah. You've, you've it, it, it is a, key, it right. is a Keystone Cops um, uh, slapstick Right. version of how a factory but, but, is off. But, but, in, but in, in, in a real world situation where is there, mm. if every company was doing that, so you're, you're talking about the economy as a, as a whole, yeah. then as companies grow, you, they are going to become more efficient per unit at producing stuff because of the, because of the economies of scale. So, you, so you're producing more uh, on machines. You, as you get more machines, the well, machines no, get cheaper. <laughs> and so you're getting, so your, each individual unit is going to get more expensive. But you will reach a point when you have diminishing returns where if there's so many people employing and the economy is growing so quickly, the cost of labor is going to become more expensive. Yeah, you, and, you, then, and then the energy factor as well. Yeah. If you're consuming energy, energy is going to become more expensive. Let's, let's bring it back a bit because right. what Shreff is saying, let's work at a logical level from how you define an industry. Yeah. You see, if you define industry broadly, Labor, you know, you have agriculture, manufacturing, blah blah blah. Then your fixed inputs, in that sense, are fixed because to get more land for agriculture, you've got to take some land from manufacturing. Yeah. Okay? So you do face something which resembles a fixed resource. But in that situation, your industry is so broadly defined that if you increase the employment in agriculture, you're going to cause wage rises elsewhere. And therefore, the wage rises are going to come back and affect the demand for agriculture, and the whole idea of independent demand and supply curves falls over. Right. So you can't. Then, if you go to a very low level, and you talk about like making nails, for example, rather than manufacturing in general, then if you have particular capital machinery needed to make nails, and you need more capital machines, and that you know, that, like hammers, for example, you will buy those 
from the industry that produces hammers. So you, it isn't right to call it fixed anymore. You can vary the amount of machinery you'll use. And the, and, and the, and the basic point is that machines are designed to be used by a specific number of workers, no more, no less. Mm-hmm. I actually bumped into a guy um, uh, in, in an international flight once who was heading off to somewhere in China because they were selling a machine to make... Uh, uh, the, the, I've forgotten the actual initial to stand for it, but the chips that are, tell you your physical location. I've forgotten no. the chips you put into a into a device that tracking a well, like a GPS type chip. Huh? You know, G, the, like little, cheap. little. I've forgotten the little chips that actually not GPS style, but it's. Uh, Anyway, I've forgotten the actual term, pardon me. Mm. But he, he said the machine was designed to have nine workers and produce 14 million units per year. And this Chinese factory was using 16 and producing 8 million units per year. And what the hell's going wrong? What are they doing wrong to use so many more workers than they need and producing so much less output? Something about the factory is organised. But you design them to be used for... Like, for example, a shovel, OK? OK, if you want to work with a shovel, OK, you need one worker... If you want to get more holes dug, you don't put two workers on a shovel. shovel. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if you have a, a, a factory uh, produce where you're going to produce holes... Well, you could, of course. You could say, well, okay, for a certain number of hours each because people can only work for so for so long. But you assuming you work... You're going to have a ratio, ratio of, work, of like, yeah, exactly. all the way through. Yeah. The whole idea that it's variable to start with is, 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 yeah. is a crazy notion coming out of an agricultural world where you might put work, more workers per acre of land in some way. But the idea that you're using all your machines Machinery at once is also an error. So if you imagine, a, think about a factory uh, being built for the very first time, uh, a brand new factory for a company in an industry which expects to expand, the factory will not be operating at capacity when it's opened because it's not would be wouldn't be big enough. Mm. So you build it so you've got twice the capacity you need right now, and you plan to grow into it, and you therefore have production lines which are idle. You don't actually use the machines until such time as demand grows sufficiently that you need to add that production line into your manufacturing process. So you maintain the ideal labour labour to capital ratio all the way through. And in fact, because it's in a factory, the factory will be designed so that it's at maximum efficiency when it's fully occupied. Yeah. You design the thing, it's you know, the best use of air conditioning, best use of lighting, best use of power in general. Um, so... With machines, with factories designed by engineers, they will have increasing efficiency right out to full capacity. Yeah. And then as you approach full capacity, you will be building another factory. Yeah. So you, you don't face this. Provided you're going to have enough demand for it which, to uh, fill which, the We're talking that inverted commas normal circumstances, so you mm. can expect the market to expand. So Schreffer said, if you define industry broadly, then yes, you can talk about capital being fixed in some way, because you've got to take land from one industry, agriculture, to another one, manufacturing. Mm. Okay, But if you just, they said that, that therefore means you can't do supply and demand analysis, because the basis of the supply and demand analysis is supply and demand are independently determined. But if you have your supply on that scale is so big, then you will affect the distribution of income and that will affect your demand curve and you can't do supply and demand analysis. If you want to do supply and demand analysis, you have to define industry much more narrowly. So nail manufacturing, car manufacturing, telephone manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And in that situation, the capital you're talking about is either, we're now talking of the growth situation I was discussing earlier, so you build it so it's designed to expand over time, or you know, if you need you know, more hammers, you go and buy hammers off the hammer manufacturing industry, you don't face that, face that constraint. Mm. So you don't have, when you, when you get down to the micro level of an industry where you are talking a very granular view of industry, then you don't have the same concept of fixed capital, or if you do have the fixed capital, you deliberately leave part of it idle. And this, you know, there's no point. You know, and the, my, my favourite example actually comes from agriculture here. So who's saying that? Sorry? Schraffer. Schraffer right. saying this. So logically saying there is no logical reason to expect diminishing marginal productivity. Yeah. Okay? And therefore, you don't get diminishing marginal productivity. You therefore don't get rising marginal cost. Therefore, the average cost will remain constant. Or falling, and in, in fact, what happens is, and this is—we well, imagine it would actually fall because you get yeah, economies of scale. Well, like I actually saw a classic statement again from from Tesla just recently, explaining why they were cutting the price of their cars coming out of China by ten percent. The reason was that it had an increase in demand. Mm. Now, the thing was, with an increase in demand. You uh, normally say, okay, an increase in demand, we're going to put our prices up. Because the opposite, you, because yeah. when you're increasing demand, your your average fixed cost of call fallen. Mm. Let's just, just rectang- rectangular hyperbola. cost you a billion dollars to make the factory into producing a million cars. It's the $1,000 per car fixed costs. If you double it, it's 500 So you have this... Definitely, your average fixed costs are always falling, and even neoclassicals won't object to that. But your variable costs also fall. Mm. Okay? You're using the factories more efficiently. You're not facing rising costs. So an increase in demand means you can drop your prices right. or increase you your can. markup. You well, can. I was going to say, you increase your markup, wouldn't you? That's, Surely. Well, he, they, they were doing both. Yeah. But so, because well, uh, they obviously so the, the reality opposite. is they obviously think if we drop it yeah. by ten percent, yeah. we're going to sell that many more, and we've got yeah. the capacity, and therefore. We make even bigger margins. So what you find is that's part of the explanation we get for the uh, incredible concentration we find in most industries. Mm. Because once you get an advantage like that, when you get more of the marketplace, you have a lower per unit cost. Your markups can increase without you needing to change your price Mm. because your cost of production has fallen. So this is the real world. And that's, Travis said, when when you look at it this way, and, and say that it's if we need to define an industry narrowly, so you can talk about you know, camera manufacturing, mice, you know, mouse manufacturing, keyboard manufacturing, and so on. You just had a guarded tour of our studio, by and the way. Looking around the room, you know, going, <laughs> rubber, 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 rubber ducky manufacturing, but balls one sits on manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So all these things are very narrowly defined, the whole idea that you'll have a variable ratio between your variable factor and your fixed factor is just nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Okay. You, you'll have, uh, you, you'll buy them in the ideal, you will hire workers in, in the ratio of the machines that you wish to use at the time, which depends on the level of demand you have. So he said, looking at it this way, the classical school argument that, demand, that price is set by the cost of production plus a markup Seems to be the most sensible one around. So, so in nineteen twenty-six, he said all this stuff on Marshall isn't about rising, diminishing returns and rising fashion. marginal cost is nonsense. Right. So a complete bunkum. The idea. Complete bunkum, and that's still being the complete bunkum is still being practiced ninety-six years after Schraffer wrote that paper. Yeah, and it they is. still believe this nonsense, and it's been empirically contradicted till the cows come home, and they continue ignoring it. So Schraffer logically said. 
why we should find that firms have constant or falling marginal cost. And when empirical research was done, Schraffer's opinion was confirmed. So what about in situations where you've got lots of competing industries? Thinking of the situation we're in now, Mm because this is an interesting point in time, isn't it? Because so many prices are being thrown up in the air Mm. because of the relativities of demand for various components Mm. that go up to make an individual unit. So Mm. whereas in the past you might be producing one thing and it uses components that are used to make that one thing plus Mm. making other things. But that component now is rare because perhaps it's sourced from China or it's too expensive to ship or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so there's capacity being placed on the production of that individual item which is using that that contributing element mm. which is also being used elsewhere where its its merit may be less I mean, people are prepared to pay i'm not making this point very well but, but I'm i don't get the point i mean we, you, we, you, we, we're in a stage now where there's a limit of supply of things that might have been able to supply one the, or two different elements before different products and therefore before. the shortage you've got to pay more and you're paying more for your inputs yes and that's a reason to have rising thank cost. god you're here but yeah. that's the, again neoclassical <laughs> theory leaves that out yeah and so this is the this is the nonsense so his first contribution and, and, and this leads to what his second and major contribution was, was to say that what you should expect is that costs are constant or falling, uh, and therefore what you what you get coming out of that is the capacity for the industrial concentration we're seeing today, and we need a theory of variable markups on that basis. Right. And he wanted, he said, that's if I was going to do the direction I'd look at, that's the way I'd move, which is pretty much what Koleski did at a later stage, looking at markups as being a major determinant of prices. But instead, he went into trying... So the essential part of the neoclassical theory was that you could define capital. You could define the number of machines you have. Okay, But he said, how do you add up a, a, a spinning jenny to a, uh, to a wine press? How do you add them together? And the only way you can add them together at the moment is by adding their prices together. Mm. But according to the theory, their prices determined upon the rate of profit. So what you get is a circularity. So what he actually found himself doing after the contributions on competition uh, theory back in the early 20s is trying to work out whether there was an invariant standard of measurement that could independently measure the amount of capital that existed. And that's what became his magnum opus, the production of commodities by means of commodities. Yeah. Draw you to a critique of economic theory. I tried to read that, by the way. It's largely, large, it largely unreadable, isn't it? It's fair to say. But look, we'll come back and talk about that in, in just a second. We need to take a break. Okay. It is the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. We're talking about Piero Schraffer. Uh, more in just a second. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned the production of commodity by means of commodities. Yeah, it's... Um, so... Is this a bit about what I was talking about, where you've got individual components that are contributing to the, the making of, of goods? Or I have to say, I tried to get into It's one of those papers or books which yeah. is, uh, you, you get through uh, two sentences before he has to sling another formula at you. <laughs> uh, Funnily I, enough, he wasn't a mathematician and he used a lot of notation, which was his own idiosyncratic notation. It's actually much easier to do what he did using matrix mathematics which is fundamentally what he was doing. But what he was saying was that to the whole idea of neoclassical theory talks about an amount of capital and an amount of labor and both of them getting uh, having diminishing returns um, so that you could and, – and, and, and the distribution of income being such that the marginal product of labor was the wage and the marginal product of capital was the rate of profit and the two of them completely exhausted the value of GDP. Okay? And so he said, well, the, it's easy to measure the amount of labor in terms of hours of, uh, hours of labor time. You're ignoring skill, obviously, and you're ignoring a whole range of other factors as well, but you can you can understand the abstraction of unskilled labour, which is measured in hours, and then the wage is measured in pounds, and the output is measured in physical units of a good being produced. So you've got a enumerate whatever your ratio you're looking at, your numerator and your denominator independent. Okay? When it comes to capital, if you're saying the rate of return depends upon the amount of capital, <coughs> but what's the rate of return? So what you get is the amount of capital is supposed to determine the price of capital, but how do you add the capital up? And you add the capital up using the price, but the price is determined by the rate of return. Or the element of cost in making that, though, isn't it? I mean, every machine is a, is a product in itself. So well, it's- that's, that's what Schraffer's great insight was. He said, if you want to add machinery up, because the theory says that the amount determines the price, you can't use the price to measure the amount. You've got to use something else. And what he realized he could do is he could reduce capital to dated labor. So you imagine you've got a machine now, which was made last year. Then you can say, okay, this machine now consists of labor put in last year plus machinery put in last year. And then you can look at the machinery put in last year and say, well, that machinery last year was made using labor two years ago and machinery two years ago. So you go back two years. And then, and then you've got three and four and five and six Seems and seven. Seems very complicated. What, 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 what's wrong with the idea that, okay, I want to try and work out what the value of capital is. It's how much people are prepared to pay for the machinery, which because is based on what, what the return is going to be based on it, that machinery, it, you know, and how it, much it's saving in wages, It for doesn't example. matter if you're working with a theory of, uh, of, of capitalism where the rate of return is a surplus, okay? Because in that situation, you're not saying... The price you're determining, the, the rate of return, depends upon the productivity of the machine. Mm. Okay, so the the, the post-Keynesian theory that I work in uh, doesn't says the measurement of capital is independent of the rate of return on capital. 
Okay. The rate of return is a surplus. It depends right. on both relative bargaining power. Okay, so what I'm it. saying is, the, is that circular? That's, that's, that's You're talking about you, how much I'm prepared to pay yeah. is determined on what I'm going to get back from it, which yeah. isn't necessarily related to actually the cost of yeah. making So you've got it. to be able to measure capital in a way which is independent on a of cost, its price. On a cost basis. Not, Not a, a cost, cost, but it has to be physical. Right. Okay. And so what he realized was you could, first of all, work out um, – a, a way of reducing machinery to dated labour, okay? So there was, we, that's the, your uniform measure becomes not the dollar price of the machine, but this dated labour concept of how many workers did it take to to produce it. Plus the, the capital involved in producing Yeah, it. but each, each time you do it, I mean, you, you take you the capital back. and you reduce the capital. Right. So you do the same. It's an iterative operation. You start with here's the uh, current amount of this is, here's a machine. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So you yeah. get, you keep on. So you're keep trying to get how much it costs based on the work of the work of workers who made it in the past, yeah. plus the yeah. so plus the machinery that they used, and and that machinery. How much did that take based yeah. on how many workers yeah. are involved in the machinery that was involved in that? And but, on, what but, you what you get out of it is an incredibly complicated formula. Right, but why? What, uh, what what use is that information once you get? So once you get an accurate <clears throat> value of the capital that's being deployed in the economy right now, what use is that to us? Well, the use is it undermining our classical theory. Now, the, one of my old oh, colleagues, yeah, very <laughs> useful. One of my old <laughs> colleagues at but, New South Wales University, Peter Chrysler, used to make the paint very strongly. You, every word that Schraffer put into a document was a vital word. He used to fight. Apparently, he spent three or four weeks arguing at the location of a comma in a paragraph with was a co-author. Was that a comma? You just did a comma just then. Uh, a you specific did, comma. Where did right, it go? Okay. Right. I like the way you said comma and then you have to pause. I left the comma. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Oh, it was only a, a verbal, short pause. Verbal wasn't, comma. wasn't a full stop. No, or, or a semicolon. Okay, even. A, co- a comma. Yeah. So he said, so look at the subtitle. The subject is prelude to a critique of economic theory. <laughs> so it was putting the work together that was needed to write a critique of economic theory. That was the role of production of commodities by means of commodities. And the the critique he was making is that the theory says the rate of return on mach- on machinery depends upon the amount of machinery. But the amount of machinery that is measured, if you add it up in, in dollar terms, is affected by the rate of return. So you get a circularity. So to remove the circularity, you had to reduce the machine itself to something which was not the machine, which is this idea of dated labour. But when you do it, if you assume you're in an economy which has been in the long run general equilibrium for millennia, okay, and the rate of profit hasn't changed at all, then you have a rate of profit which you, you, if you're getting that return, when you do this reduction of a machine here this year to a machine last year's, machines last year that helped make that machine plus the labour, then you've got a that's one year ago. So to get the equilibrium return, you've got to get one plus the rate of profit on those inputs. So you have one plus the rate of profit. Uh, you have the, the amount of labour m- multiplied by one plus the rate of profit one year ago plus the machinery. You go back two years, amount of labour plus one times the rate of profit squared. Okay? So you start getting these incredibly complicated terms involving the amount of labour, the rate of return and the number of years that ago that this particular component of your machine today was made. And you get this very, very nonlinear relationship between the rate of profit and how much capital you measure you have. So it gives all sorts of examples in so, the book. So but, what would what would be happening there then? Well, so you'd, you'd be, it's, getting, it's you'd be just, getting a greater return as time goes on in terms of no, machine? It's or? just that what you, the amount of labour, when you're trying to get this measure, 
of the amount of how much, what amount of a machine do you have here? The amount of machinery measure that you have depends upon the rate of profit. Okay? So rather than the rate of profit being determined by the amount of capital, the amount of capital you measure depends upon the rate of profit. And if you, you can compare two production techniques, one of which involves lots of labor and no, and only one machine ages and ages ago, and another one involving lots of machines now and, 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 and no uh, very little labor, uh, your measurement of the amount of machinery you have will vary depending upon the rate of profit. So there's a circularity in there. So what he was showing was even if you get, an, if you, in, like initially when you look at the rate of return on machinery, you're saying the rate of profit depends upon um, the amount of capital. You've got to, that's, that's circular. They said, let's get an accurate measure which reduces to dated labor. And you still get the circularity. You can't get away from the circularity in how you define the amount of machinery you have. So you vary the rate of profit. You will vary the amount of capital you measure that you have in a very nonlinear way. So you no longer can argue that the return to capital is a return for marginal productivity. The only explanation you can give is it's a surplus. Okay. You pay the workers their cost of production plus their you know, capacity to bargain for more than a subsistence wage. Uh, the profit will be a surplus. The profit will not be based on the productivity of the machinery but the power relations in capitalism. And, and therefore the whole marginal product theory falls apart. So it's, it was a prelude to a critique of the marginal productivity theory of income distribution and saying this can't be the explanation for the distribution of income. So what happens to that surplus? Well, that surplus is where profit comes from. from yeah. Okay. So, um, so you 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 have an argument that undermines the neoclassical theory of income distribution, and that's just saying the theory should go. And he said the same thing about Marshall. Marshall's theory of competition should be rejected because it's logically incoherent. And the theory of income distribution, which is this marginal product theory that actually comes from uh, J.B. Clark at the turn, of the turn of the 20th century, that theory should also be rejected. Right. So, so we go back to the classical school saying cost of production sets uh, the, the price and, uh, and power relations determine the distribution of income. Right, so I'm still not getting it. You may be surprised to hear, <laughs> yeah. looking at the look on my face as you've yeah. been through all of that. Yeah. But so let's let, let's go back to. Uh, I haven't got too long to spend on it, but I okay. mean, if this is this is fundamental we to what we should spend he, a lot of time on Schraffer one day. Yeah, yeah, but this is fundamental <laughs> to what he stood for, I guess. So we, it's worth it's mm. worth getting right. Mm. But I mean, that that very simplistic notion of uh, what what is the return I get from running a, a company that is a mix of machinery and people? Mm. I know how much I'm paying people, and I know how much that machinery costs me. Mm. And I make the decision as to how much I'm going to spend on that machine based on the returns I'm going to get, based mm. on mm. how many people it's going to, what the output's going to be, the ratio of the machines to the number of people I need to employ. Mm. And maybe some people can do some of that stuff without the machine, So I'll and they're cheaper, so I get people to do it. The moment it's cheaper for, to get the machine in, I pay for the machine at whatever the cost of that machine is, which is determined by a market value of what people are prepared to pay for that machine. Mm. What's and therefore the the entire cost of capital in the economy is just adding up how much people are paid for that machinery. What's wrong with that approach? Uh, 
nothing comparatively. It, it, the, the thing it's a darn sight easier than huh? working. It's darn sight easier than going back and working well, out. Well, see, what he was trying again was a prelude to a critique. Right. He was saying, given this logical deduction of how to measure capital accurately, then you can apply that to the theory of income distribution and say, does this theory make sense? And the theory of income distribution in the neoclassical theory says that the rate of return depends upon the amount of capital. Okay. Mm -hmm. He said, well, that's wrong. The amount of capital depends upon the rate of return. Right. He measured it. So you cannot use that theory. It doesn't work. Logically, it doesn't work. It's logically incoherent. And the crazy thing is that um, this this ended up being a debate between Cambridge in the UK, where Schraffer was based, and Cambridge in America, where Paul Samuelson was based. And Paul Samuelson and colleagues were trying to defend the neoclassical theory of income distribution and production against the critiques from Cambridge in the UK. And my introduction to becoming a non-orthodox economist was when I, the, the second stage in that, <coughs> pardon me, was reading Samuelson's paper called A Summing Up, written in 1966, actually somewhere in the middle of this whole debate, where he conceded defeat. Because one thing, that, like with, with the neoclassical theory, one thing which comes out of it is is the idea that as the price of capital drops, you will use more capital. Okay, mm -hmm. and the question: How do you measure what more is? Okay, now what what Samuelson dived into critique, um, Sraffa and, and Garignani and all the economists who spun off from Sraffa's work, but partly what he what what Samuelson did was very clever. Was said. Of course, we know there's no such thing as a variable ratio of labour to machines. In the real world, there's one worker per shovel, you know, for mm -hmm. nine people per RFC producing chip. Uh, the, that was the example I was thinking of earlier. Um, and, and that's the ideal ratio. There is no variable ratio. What will happen, though, is if you... If, the, if, if you have a fall in the price of capital, then another form of capital will be coming in. So if you go from – if capital gets cheaper, you'll go from shovels to um, um, you know, what do you call those? Pneumatic drills. Pneumatic drills. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. And then it gets cheaper, you'll go back to the shovels again. Mm. Uh, so you have a whole lot of straight lines – straight lines between labour and capital, and then you'll, you'll use a different line as the price of capital gets cheaper. So if you have a whole lot of straight lines and you then move from one to the other as things get cheaper, the envelope of the straight lines will be a smooth curve we call an isoquant, equal amounts of output out of varying amounts of labour and capital. And he used that to say that's what's actually going on. We just teach our students a parable about this perfectly substitutable labour and capital. What's going on in the background is as capital gets cheaper, you substitute one machinery with a fixed labour capital ratio for another machine with a higher, with a lower ratio of labour to capital and therefore more capital involved in the production as capital gets cheaper. And this gives you this nice smooth envelope. So is this what re-switching? Yes, that's exactly it. That's where the re-switching comes from. Right. So what Sraffa and Garignani and Passanetti and a lot of Italian economists, as it happens, did with Schraffer's ideas was show that this, what, 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 what um, uh, Samuelson thought was a straight line was actually curved. Right. Okay. And the curve would mean that the curved lines would intersect at various points. So you could start with one particular technology, which was the cheapest production level at a high rate of profit, find another one took over in the intermediate, and then the one which was cheapest at the high was also cheapest at the low because the amount of capital, the measurement of capital, was not a straight-line concept. So re-switching, uh, first of all, 
um, Samuelson thought he'd found a solution to the re-switching argument. And then Garagnani, working on Schraffer's logic, showed that you got this curved relationship and you could switch from one technology to another and then back again as the rate of profit fell. And right. that made a mockery of the idea that the amount of capital determined the rate of return on capital. And what about, so where does interest rates fit into all of this? No, the, no, no, they don't. <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, he was saying the rate of profit is the rate of interest. When you look at, right. he, he did a, a matrix equation which said you've got to, you've got to, you, you, to produce commodities, you've got to have other commodities as inputs. That's your input output table. Plus, you've got to labor uh, for each of the industries at a ratio of labor to the machines times a rate of profit. And then that had to be your price relationship came out being the price being equal to the uh, one plus the rate of profit multiplied by the input output matrix times the inputs. And um, and you know, I've got lost my train of thought on that one. But that's that 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 uh, idea of a input output dynamics was. Not a, it wasn't essential in terms of fixed proportions. It actually opens up the the book by saying fixed proportions aren't essential, but if it makes it easy, if it'll work out the logic, then imagine fixed proportions. But fundamentally, the measurement of capital was invalid in their classical theory. And when you made it fit together, you no longer got the argument that the rate of return reflects the amount of capital involved or that there's some smooth transition from one technology to another as labor, as capital gets more expensive. So it's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's, there's a future in all of this which is more complicated um, than it is already, which is that relationship between people and machines might switch the other way in that, you know, we're, machines aren't spades anymore. They are computers. Sorry? Uh, the, c- machines aren't spades or, you know, they are, com- you know, in- increasingly they're computers. And it may be the case that you've got a certain amount of computing power and actually ultimately will get more out from brain power. And it may be the case that it does switch the other way. And actually, the more people you have with a fine, a set amount of computing power, you might actually get more output from having more brains put in sharing that resource. It's possible, isn't it? But, but it's, it's again, that's orthogonal to what's. Mm. he's talking about. He's setting up a framework by which you can critique the theory of income distribution. Yeah. And, he, and he basically, even Samuelson conceded defeat in a summing up. He's actually wrote, for that, for that, for this, the conclusions from the re-switching debate that make people nostalgic for the old-time parables of neoclassical theory, and therefore he's actually sending up his own parable, it's, which he wrote earlier, I said, uh, we must... Um, realize that scholars are not born to live an easy existence. We must realize and appraise the facts of life. Now, that should have been the turning point in neoclassical economics. It should have been the end of the neoclassical theory of income distribution, the end of the neoclassical theory of production. We should have gone to a refounding ourselves in the classical school, which is what Schraffer was trying to achieve. Instead, 50 or 60 years later, neoclassicals think they won that won that debate when Samuelson conceded defeat in the debate. So uh, we know my daughter wants to study economics at A-level. Uh, she's ne- having uh-huh. never done economics before in her life. Uh-huh. So she's going to be taught day one the law of diminishing returns. She is, yeah. And what do you do about it? <laughs> Tell her to listen to this podcast, I guess. Ah, well. <laughs> <laughs> See if she can make any sense out of it. That'll do for today. Okay, uh, Good right. talk. That's Pierre Straffer. Uh, well, that, that's not. That's Steve Keen you're listening to. But we were talking about Pierre Straffer. Uh, look, we may do this again in, in future weeks, looking at more uh, economists and uh, that have influenced your thinking and yep. the, the people we should know about. But we'll leave it there for now. Good to talk, Steve. Good day. And, and by the way, Happy New Year. 
Happy New Year to you too. Belatedly. <laughs> the Debunking Economics Podcast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.